to open up to the book of Acts chapter 5 and give you a little bit of a backstory on what we've been doing. We've been taking a look at this entire great book, going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's typically how we take things here on Sunday mornings as we gather, we study God's Word. Um, but we've been looking at the study of the life of the book of Acts, which is really the story of the people of God and what happened after Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven, uh, how God's work continued to unfold in and throughout the world. And the story of that is what we call the book of Acts. And the stories of that is what we see basically comprised without and throughout the entire book of Acts. And we've been looking at little vignettes and little snapshots of their life. But a couple weeks ago, what we did is we came into chapter 4, and we wanted to kind of point out sort of a summary verse that sort of encapsulates a very large passage of Scripture. So chapter 4, chapter 5, portions of chapter 6 are all basically interconnected. And one of the things that we described was that it's a really lengthy story. And to just simply read through this big, long, lengthy story uh, would have taken a really long time, too. We didn't want to lose you guys in the duration of the story. So what we did is we wanted to really try to focus on what are some of the summary ideas that it seems like the Holy Spirit's trying to convey in this, and then begin to look at some of those snapshots. So, for example... The passage that we sort of landed on was in chapter 4, verse 33. It says this. I'll just read it. It says, And great grace was upon them all, which is the church. This community of Jesus' people were basically told this summary statement by Luke that great grace, whatever that is, was upon this whole community of people. The word great grace is the Greek word mega charis or super grace, however you want to describe it. But the idea is that God's grace, mega grace, super grace, was upon this community of people. But then we were asking the question that, that what, what does it look like to be this community of people that is operating under or having this stamp of approval, if you would, by God that is described as great grace? What does a community of people look like? So we've been looking at various aspects of that. So next slide, take a look at some other examples of this. We saw that, first of all, that radical generosity is what it looks like. We see this community of people radically being generous with everything they have. Second thing we saw was at the beginning of chapter 5, that holiness. We looked at this a little bit last week, which is a story of a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. I won't go into it. Uh, you guys weren't here last week. I encourage you to check it out. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, thirdly, we see that the broken and the marginalized were being welcomed and made whole. So this community of people basically became the repository for all of these people that were marginalized or broken or on the outskirts or outcasts of the community. So, you know, the question typically is for any type of society, for example, like even San Luis Obispo deals with this, you know, the happiest city on, uh, you know, in North America, we still have this contingency of people that the city, for the most part, is kind of like, what the heck do we do with these people? Like, where do they go? Where do we deal with them? Do, do we just lock them away? Do we put them out of sight, out of mind? Do we let them go sleep under a bridge? What do we do with these people? Well, the early church had the same type of issue that they were dealing with, and every society has the same type of issue. But what we see in the early church was that the church became, this community became sort of the repository. It was the spot. It was the place where all of those that were broken, marginalized, hurting, outcasts were basically being welcomed, not just welcomed, but loved. Uh, they were being healed. They were being prayed for. Those that were uh, struggling with uh, physical maladies, they were being prayed for, and God miraculously was healing them. People that were like orphaned or without a home, people that had no place that they can call their own, they were being given that spot. People that had needs, financial needs, or any other types of needs, 
They were coming to this community of people, and they had their needs being met. This is amazing. So in other, in other words, you can think of it this way. The early church really was sort of this complete society. It was the spot. It was the place where people that were social outcasts were basically finding a new society, a new family, a new place to go. Um, we also see, fourthly, that uh, this is what we'll look at really here today, is the idea that there is favor and influence that was among all the people. So there was a sense where, because of the fact that um, many people were being met and having their needs met and taken care of and they were being healed within this community, uh, there was a sense of uh, fame that was spreading. There was a sense of influence that was beginning to fan out from this community of people called the church. And next week we'll take a look at the idea of what it means for them to be guided by this providential hand of God. And we'll look at uh, several stories of how God just miraculously was sort of carrying these people um, forward. So the real question that I want to really try to understand and unpack and look at a little bit today is this idea of what does it look like to be this community of people that were under God's stamp of mega grace, um, but also being this community of people that had this sense of great favor and influence among the people. So with that, we're going to jump back into the story So chapter 5 is where we're at. We'll take a look at verses 12 through 14. I'll read this, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin to get to work, look at, and try to understand a little bit about what this is describing. So it says this. They were all together. It's the community of Jesus' people. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. That's the word we'll look at, the idea of high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes, open our hearts, open our understanding to hear, to receive, to respond, God, to what's happening here in this church. We want to be a community of people that are connected to, that act like, that live within the same story that these people did. God, we realize that just as we sing, our hearts collectively as well as individually, they are absolutely prone to wander. Every one of us, prone to wander. Lord, we feel that prone to leave the God we love. Um, God, some of us here, that, that is by definition where we're at right now. We, are, we have wandered far from you. Our hearts have strayed. We've veered. We have drifted. And God, others here, we, we feel the, the, the reality of that, and we don't want to drift. That's why we're here, because we, we hope to be brought back in. Um, some of us, God, we, we have drifted, and we just don't even know it. We just, it is the definition of our life, just drift. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just open our hearts, our minds, our imagination to see who you are, see what you desire to do in our lives. And so we surrender, God, ourselves to you. Have your way, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's jump in and take a look at a couple things here. First of all, we see that, verse 13, that none of the rest, this is what appears to be somewhat of, um, uh, how would I say it, not so much a straight-up contradiction, but it seems a little bit confusing, at least, so we'll just kind of leave it at that. It says, and they were all in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared them, but the people held them in high esteem, that seems to be sort of the bridge verse, and then verse 14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord in multitude. So the question is, what is it? Were, were people staying away from them, as it says at the beginning of that passage, where it says, none of the rest dare to join them, or is it that 
multitude of believers were being added to the Lord. So the answer to that is, is, is yes, yes. There were those that were standing away. They were uh, afraid to engage with this community. So the question naturally is, who is that group of people that were standing at a distance? It's kind of where um, it comes down to try to interpreting and understanding a little bit about a passage. And this is kind of the job of what pastors do and professors and theologians and so on and so forth, as well as those of you that just are interested in reading the Bible, which hopefully should be every one of us that love God, want to understand a little bit about God. So, you know, we have to do a little bit of unpacking what this is. So some have suggested that this is none of the rest, that phrase, none of the rest, is a reference to those that were none of the rest that were like Ananias and Sapphira, which raises the question, who were Ananias and Sapphira and what was so wrong with them? And if you remember the story at the beginning of chapter 5, this was uh, a, a group of people or two people that basically, um, uh, J. I. not J.I. Packer, John Stott, which I quoted last week, basically said something to the fact that this was two people, they wanted all the, um, the benefits of living generously without actually the sacrifice. So in other words, these were people that wanted to be viewed as living as radical Radically generous people, but they really didn't want to engage the radical uh, sacrifice that goes along with that. So if you're trying to figure out what that means, what it means is that if you're going to be a person that lives radically generous with your life, that will cost you. will absolutely cost you. If you are to be somebody that reflects something of the character and the nature of God, if you've ever desired in your heart, if you've ever prayed the prayer, Jesus, make me like you, be careful i just be, be really straight up honest. Be careful with that prayer because if you are really honest and really serious about that, at some point what may end up happening is pain will begin to enter into your life. And what I mean by that is that pain by way of sacrifice. Sacrifice is never easy. Jesus was sacrificed. He did feel pain, but it was because of his radical generosity. So let me put it this way. If you choose to live a life of radical generosity, you will feel that. You cannot be simultaneously radically generous and never feel pain at the same time. Okay, let me give you an example of this. So if you have money and you are going to be like, I'm going to be radically generous with my money to the point of really, truly benefiting, helping other people out, at some point it will mean that you will go without. You will go, out, go without extra clothing. You will go without extra food. You will go without maybe um, having high rent, or whatever the case is. If you, for example, let's say you don't, you don't maybe have a lot of money, but you have a lot of assets. So let's say you have a house or you have a car or some other things like that, and you're like, I want to be radically generous with what I have. And what that means is you will feel the impact of that radical generosity in other ways. So let me give an example. My wife and I, God allowed us to live in this really great house. We moved in about a year and a half ago, so something like that, and we're coming up to realizing that we've probably got to move out of that again by about May, which means we're right now kind of starting to look for another house, which is absolutely terrifying. The prices in San Luis Obispo are absolutely ridiculous, but that's a whole other subject, which I won't get into right now. Uh, but the point that I would make is that the house that we've lived in over the past year and a half is, is awesome. It's really large. It's awesome. And we've been able to have a lot of people over. But when you invite people over, that means that you've got to go through this radical process of getting the house ready. You have to clean it. You have to scrub, make sure the toilet doesn't have weird rings in it. You have to make sure there's toilet paper. You've got to make sure you've got food, which costs money. And if you have a lot of people over, that costs a lot of money. And then afterwards, or even throughout the process, when people are over, they're using stuff. They are making messes. Things are being spilled. 
we, we had this couch several years ago. It's just kind of a you know, side note. My, my wife and I, we, were, you know, we, we don't always buy stuff like this, but several years ago, we're just like, let's, let's buy for our family this, this couch. We bought this couch. It's a great couch. So um, it's the word. Uh, there's a difference between leather and bicast leather, all right? It's like that fake leather, faux leather. You guys familiar? Okay. Um, if, if you're trying to like, like yeah, pleather or whatever. Like, it, it's better to go the actual route of, of real leather, because even though it costs more, but I'm not trying to sell anybody. But the point of the matter is, is we had this couch that we, you know, spent a lot of money on. It was for us, it was a lot of money. Um, and it, it just totally, within the past year, got completely ruined. Part of that was because we were having lots of people at our house. And it was just, it was like gone. It was, it was a couch, and we're like, I can't believe this. We just... We just bought this thing like several years ago, and it's like totally destroyed. It looks horrible, and it's awful. Like I can't even imagine inviting people over to sit on it. But the point of the matter was, is like um, we we realized like we but we want to do this. We want to have people over. Like we feel like this is something that God's given us, which means you know we ended up buying another couch. Like like gave this other one away. But the point that I'm making is this: to, in order to live radical generous generosity, you you will feel the effects of sacrifice. Whether financially, whether uh, uh, and by way of assets and whatnot, the point that I'd make is that this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they seemed to want the benefits of being known as radically generous people without feeling the pain of the reality of radical sacrifice. And so, what we see with regard to these guys is that there was perhaps a community of people that was like them that maybe some would suggest that's who none of the rest dared join them. Others have suggested that maybe what's actually going on here is that this is the religious leaders. The religious leaders, that their job was to oversee uh, what happens on the temple, make sure that everything is uh, rightly taken care of and well stewarded and whatnot. But we also know that they didn't do a good job because even Jesus confronts them. He says, you guys, uh, this house, this temple is to be a house of prayer except... You guys have misused your privilege, and instead of this being a house of prayers, become a den of thieves. So um, some have suggested that this is probably what they're referring to, that none of the rest there joining them was probably a reference to the religious leaders. I think that's probably what's going on here. So none of the rest of the religious leaders or the religious elite dared join this community of people, but we're told in verse 14 that more than ever believers were added to the Lord in multitudes, which means that even though... What was happening in the early church was, was pretty radical, pretty amazing. And even though it was withstood by the religious elite, um, this was a movement for the people. Like people were being swept up in droves by what God was doing. So this is where we kind of enter into that little middle phrase where it says, but the people held them in high esteem. And that's kind of the word that I want to sort of hone in on and think about and try to understand and let it shape our understanding of what's taking place here. Because again, uh, we're asking the question, what does it look like to be a church or a community of people that are living within the boundaries or the realm of God's mega grace? And one of the things that we notice is that with this community of people, they had this sense of high esteem. The people held them in high esteem. So what does that mean? Here's a couple ways in which that particular word uh, appears throughout the New Testament. It's actually the Greek word, Mega uh, Luno, and it's the idea of super uh, esteem or super respectability or whatever the case is. And we'll see how that kind of plays out. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, next slide, uh, gives some example of this. Verse 1, it says this, the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees, they enlarge the borders of the garment. So the idea of enlarging the borders of the garment is the exact same 
word of, of spreading out or esteem. So in this context, it's the idea of making their clothing look really large. It's all external so that when people look at them, they would have the, um, the perspective that these people are super spiritual. But again, it's just simply nothing more than them expanding the garments in which they wear. It's all external. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 46, it says that Mary said, my soul magnifies. And there's that word again. The Lord is magnified by way of Mary. Acts 19, uh, verse 17, it says, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So the idea of magnification or megaluno is the idea of something that is uh, expanded or made much of, or we would say glorified or exalted or have high respectability. Uh, here's another way in which this particular word appears, and it's kind of more closer to where I want to um, land on and uh, think about just a little bit, and we'll wrap things up. Last slide, or next slide, I should say, is uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul, he's an early church leader, here's what he says. We will not boast about the things done outside our area of influence. We will boast only about what has happened within the borders or the boundaries of the work that God has given to us, which includes our working with you. So Paul the Apostle was um, an early uh, first century church planter. So he went around and he planted these little communities of Jesus people. We would call that church planting. So when Paul was going around doing this, he's basically writing this letter to this group of people that lived in this city called Corinth. And he's saying, look, um, you know, we're excited to see what God's doing because uh, the work that's happening within you and upon you and through you and beyond you, um, we rejoice in that. God's doing something good. He's expanding, if you would, um, your influence. And this is where the verse 15, it gets a little bit more specific in detail. He says, we do not boast and claim credit for the work from someone else that someone else has done. Instead, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. There's our Greek word, mega luno. And he says, so that we will be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond where no one else is working. So we get a little bit of a better understanding as to what was happening in the early church based upon this particular passage. And what Paul is indicating is the idea of extended or expansion is this idea of extension of influence. So we would say something along these lines, your sphere of influence. So here's what Paul is saying, is that, we hope, we pray, we expect, we desire to have our sphere of influence to broaden because as it broadens, it creates a better, more unique opportunity for us, as he says in verse 16, to preach the good news in all these other places. So what Paul's actually basically saying is that we really truly want for our platform, um, our spotlight, to get bigger, our ability to have greater influence. So, back into the story of the book of Acts, we see the early church, as they were living within this realm of great grace was coming upon them, so was also the sense of Megaluna, the sense of expansion of their terrain, their borders, their ability to influence people. Their sphere of influence was expanding. For what purpose? What were they, uh, how were they harnessing this opportunity? What were they doing with it? That's what I really want to try to unpack and what we begin to see. So in moving into this, I want to think about really two things. So the early church, we know that because they recognized this large platform that was given to them, they were always using this as an opportunity to pray for the sick, 
to welcome those that were marginalized, to preach the gospel to those that didn't understand who God was or that were in some form or another of confusion about who God was. They were always aware of this platform. They were always looking for opportunities to extend God's kindness to those that would be brought into this awareness. So there's two things that I think about this. One is that the early church, they were totally aware of really its influence. They were aware of it. They, they knew. They were living in this, if you think of it this way, this idea of self-awareness. They knew that there were eyes all around the world, uh, you know, all around the world, obviously, within their own location, watching them, looking at them, observing what was going on, who they were, what they were professing, what they were proclaiming. I think this is a really important thing because I think many of us, we never even really pause for any length of time to really even consider or to think about what type of influence or what type of sphere of influence do we have with other people. So I want you to pause for a moment and just think about that. Like, think about what is the sphere of influence that you have in other people's lives. If you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're a, a, you know owner of a business or a manager at a business, or if you're a mom, every one of you have some sphere of influence. For some of you, it's smaller. Uh, for others, it's, it's really large. Uh, for some, uh, you know, obviously in today's world, in social media-driven age, you can be kind of a nobody in a small town and have like 50,000 people that follow you on Instagram. Like, that is a 50,000-member stage or sphere of influence, which means everything you post, somebody is drawing some conclusions about your life. Now, for example, if you're a follower of Jesus, those people that watch you, that observe what you post and what you uh, put forth and what you, uh, how you live out, you are actually painting a picture for others what God is like and how you interact with him, how you deal with God how you uh, process what God is like. So the early church, I would say, they were totally aware of this sphere of influence, of the platform that had been given to them. Again, are you aware of that? Do you see that? Do you, do you know of this? Or are you like many of us, who is just a level of ignorance? You might just not be aware. You might not think about it. You might not think about to what extent. I think oftentimes in interacting with people, I, I think most people just sort of belittle that. They're just like, ah, yeah, I might have a lot of people that follow me on Facebook or my Instagram account or whatever, or there's people around me, but I don't think many people even place much weight upon what I say or what I do. But you would be surprised. Because think about how many people that you have in your life that you look at and say, I hear what they have to say. I want to hear what their input or how they process certain things or someone that maybe you know that comes into a situation or a crisis in their life where they get diagnosed with cancer or some sort of gnarly thing happens to them, you now begin to watch them and observe how they interact with the circumstances that they are being confronted with. It's one of the reasons why many of us, if you've ever had somebody in your life that you looked up to and they've let you down or they've acted in such a way that has brought you know, a lot of shame or guilt or hurt or pain or confusion in your life, it's one of the reasons why those are not small things. I was talking to a guy... Uh, several weeks ago, and he's you know a fairly successful uh, business owner. He's got a really good job. He's uh, you know doing really well in his field. And uh, he was telling me a little bit about a story of a youth leader that he had in his life. And this was a really good friend. This guy had a lot of heavy impact upon his life in terms of uh, sharing his faith about Christ with this guy. It had completely shaped this guy's life. But this guy, as he was telling me, this guy had basically gone through a divorce, left his wife, left his kids for 
you know, some girl that was in his high school ministry, whatever the case is, and it absolutely devastated this guy. So, you know, years later, after this guy had this huge impact, um, but I think if you were to ask the guy that had, you know, had this moral failure, like, do you even realize the type of impact that you had upon so many people's lives? My guess would probably be, he would probably say something to the effect of, like, I didn't realize how extensive it was. So I think most of us are really, in some way, shape, or form, somewhat ignorant about the, the extensiveness of the platform or of our sphere of influence. So, again, my point is to simply say this. I think the early church really lived with an awareness of this sphere of influence. They, they, they maximized it. They used it as a way to make much of God. So they were not ignorant of it. They were aware of it. Second thing that I noticed with regard to these guys is that they were really aware of the story that they were part of, which means there was a larger purpose behind just simply having this sphere of influence. So here's what I mean by this. I like the metaphor, the usage, or the idea of thinking about everything in our lives by way of a story. Story is how we, for the most part, make sense of stuff. It's one of the reasons why storytelling never goes out of style. It's one of the reasons why we oftentimes um, have a really, maybe have a really hard time you know, reading a theology book where unless you're like a small group or percentage of people that's kind of geekish like me and you actually like reading hardcore theology, most of us would prefer to just hear a story. It's one of the reasons why I love C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis knows how to imbibe insanely dense theology in a story, all right? There is a lot of theology in Aslan is, you know, not a tame lion, but, you know, you can't tame him, but he's, but he's good. I mean, there's a lot of theology that's stuffed into that ideology, that concept, that picture, that metaphor. But the point that I'd make is this, is that we use stories to somehow make sense of our lives. The early church lived within, within a story. They saw themselves as a part of this long, ongoing narrative that somehow they were swept up into. Let me give you an example of this, just to kind of, I'll show you a little bit of a... Um, a diagram here. Um, this is out of a book by a theologian guy by the name of Christopher Wright, and it's in a book that's called The Mission of God's People. He breaks it down into kind of four nice, simple categories, and I'll just kind of go through these really quickly. One thinks of creation. Originally, God creates all things, but immediately things go really bad. People turn from God. Adam and Eve are sort of the, uh, um, the, the classic prototypes of and for all humanity. So in other words, all of us, at some point, we would say that we, by nature, with the default mode of our heart, is to follow the lineage and the actions and attitudes, really, of Adam and Eve, which means Adam and Eve basically turned on God and says, we think that there's an alternative truth to God. And ultimately what happened was the alternative truth that they lived according to and believed and followed led to death and you know, brokenness and a sense of distrust. Adam and Eve are no longer united, and so they're turning their backs on each other, and, you know, Adam's basically accusing his wife of doing wrong, and Eve's accusing so on. You know, the whole idea is that everything turns upside down on its head, and that leads to not only creation, but the fall. But then it immediately opens up this big, wide door to God saying, I'm not going to let everything just go down the drain into its constant, swirling black hole of brokenness. That God says, I will come in and I will bring healing to where there is brokenness. I will bring a sense of wholeness to where there is nothing but constant shattering. This is where God basically then begins to make this 
covenant with a guy by the name of Abraham or Abram. So um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, in fact, why don't you turn there real quick and we'll just read this. If you're trying to understand where the book of Genesis is, go to page one. <laughs> turn to the right just a little bit to chapter 12, and I'll just read a couple little passages here of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, and from the land that I will, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, uh, and those who dishonor you I will curse. And he says, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So think about this. A lot of scholars, theologians actually believe that what's happening here in the passage is that this is sort of um, the, the, the ultimate or the primary great commission. So before the great commission that we oftentimes think about in the New Testament, where Jesus calls the church to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, um, a lot of scholars see this as sort of the, the, the very first great commission, where God calls Abraham, uh, Abram and commissions him to go into a foreign territory, foreign country, but then with that, God equips Abram with these promises. And in short, his promise is, I'm going to give you a very large family, but from this family, you will be tremendously blessed. But then God adds that the idea of blessing upon you is not to be an end in and of itself, but that from you who are blessed, you will then be a blessing to many others. So if I can put it this way. Um, God's aim was not to just bless Abram as an end of itself, but he was blessed to be a blessing. So this is the big idea. This is the big concept that I think the early church, they saw themselves. So as redemptive story continues to go on, we see the story of the Exodus, if you're familiar with that, I'm not going to go through all that, Um, then ultimately works its way to Jesus. Jesus comes in this world, Jesus sees himself as fulfilling the story of Israel's History. It's one of the reasons why we talked a little bit about this earlier when I was sharing a little bit about the Passover, why Jesus sits down and has a Passover meal with him. It doesn't create something brand new. Jesus sees himself as part of the story of Israel. He sees himself as literally fulfilling these, this long storyline of Israel. In other words, many scholars would put it this way, that Jesus was doing for Israel, fulfilling what Israel failed to do. He was being, if you think of it this way, perfect Israel on behalf of imperfect Israel. He was Jewish. He was obedient to the Father, whereas Israel, for the most part, was not obedient to God. And it's really the story of the majority of the Old Testament. So if you ever read portions of the Old Testament, you're like, wow, it's really dark. I just started on my own private reading uh, throughout the book of Judges. And I've said this before, but the book of Judges is like the most dark, X-rated Bible story in the entire scripture. I mean, it's so dark, so evil, so wicked, so just, just the, the fullness of man's humanity, just the brokenness all throughout there. And I think the big idea is to just convey that this is what happens when man turns his back on God. Now, all of us were various shades of that, okay? But the point that I'd make is this, is that Jesus comes, and he's not dark. He's not evil. He's not wicked. He's obedient to the Father. And Jesus, shockingly, is not hateful and spiteful towards his enemies. He's praying for them, that God would forgive them. He's loving his enemies. He's doing the very opposite of what Israel had this history of doing and of what you and I as human beings typically do. 
Jesus is the exact opposite because Jesus is fully obedient to God. So through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, we see that Jesus literally is sweeping unto himself a brand new and making unto himself a brand new humanity, a brand new community of people that are redeemed and forgiven by God and washed and having their offenses taken away and removed and they are given life in exchange for death and being given a place of favor in exchange for disfavor. And this is what we see that God is up to. Brand new community of people. But on the day of uh, Pentecost, we see that the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. In other words, uh, we see this image of these tongues of fire coming on top of their head. And again, where does that image come from? It's actually an Old Testament image that when Solomon dedicated the temple, there was this fire on top of this temple. It symbol, symbolized and uh, indicated the fact that God's presence was over this time and space called the temple. Well, guess where God's temple is now? Over every person that is following Jesus. The, the idea is that God's temple has literally gone public. It's not... Uh, located time and space in one particular spot, one particular area of the map. It is in, in above and beyond all people that bear the name of Jesus. So what that means is we see that it leads to sort of this new creation that God has begun something. God has launched something. So brings us back to the story. So the early church, they see themselves, literally, I believe, as living in the fulfillment of God's promises, that God who promised to bless all of the nations of the earth by expanding their favor, their blessing, their privilege, their, their, their goodness, the, the goodness of God through them to all the, the early church, I think they saw themselves as being the fulfillment of this long history that began thousands of years ago. And as a result of that, they were really in so many ways unstoppable. Because like at the end of the day, you can go up to somebody that sees himself as living in these promises of God, and you can say, we're going to kill you. And by and large, what they were basically saying, you, you can kill us, that's fine, but you're not going to stop what God's doing. You can't crush, because I serve a master who, who you, you already tried this on him. You tried to kill him, and you actually succeeded, but three days later, he rose again. So what you do to me, I'm just going to follow the same path and pattern of my master you kill me i'll rise again like like what have you got to lose if you remove the power of death you understand death is the greatest weapon that any empire possesses you understand that so if you're an empire your greatest threat is to say if you don't come in alignment with our dream and our vision for democracy we will carpet bomb you Okay, what happens if you get carpet bombed and you have this hope of life after death? Now what? You become an unstoppable movement. That was the early church. They saw themselves as people that the greatest threat to life itself, death, was overcome by their master. And now that it's overcome, they're in Christ. New life has begun to break forth through them. God has blessed them so that now they are to be a blessing. They are literally living within the story of fulfilled promises to Abraham that all nations of the earth will be blessed. So why does this matter? Because let me put it this way. If you don't find your 
blessing or even your challenges or hardships or difficulties, in the context of the story of God, you will try to make sense of it by putting it in some other story. So let me say, for example, if, let's say, you are somebody that has uh, found yourself living in great privilege, great honor, you, you know, we live in a college community, so a lot of people, you know, go to Cal Poly, they get a good education that allows them to get a degree, that allows them to get a good job, allows them to make some money to live in some level of privilege. If you don't see that as an extension of God's blessing upon you to go from you, through you to others, but if you just see that as sort of the means or the result of working really hard, having a really bright intellect, of the fact that, you know, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, if that's the story that you use to make sense of your privilege, what type of a person will you become, especially if you have to deal with people that skate by through life, that they've been given everything. They didn't have to work hard for it, but they were given, you know, tuition. They were given grants. They were given the ability to go to school full-time because somebody else paid for them. How will you treat other people that don't work hard but have as much as you? You treat them with condescension, right? Give the answer, like, that, that's how you treat them. You have to look at them that way. There's no other way because by way of comparison, you've done all this yourself. So in other words, the story that you attach or affix to your blessing in life will determine the type of person you become. Does this make sense to you guys? If you, like the early church, see yourself as blessed by Yahweh to be a blessing, then that will create this unstoppable movement that has great grace upon it that is able to use every platform that God gives, not as a means to just consume your own desires and own ceaseless, unending cravings, but as a means to be a blessing to other people. So think of it this way. Are you aware, do you think of, do you know of the platform that you have? Are you aware of the sphere of influence? And finally, what story do you attach to that? Did you do it yourself? Did you create it yourself? Or do you see yourself as a part of this greater story of sons and daughters of Abraham being blessed by God to be a blessing to all nations? I believe that's how the early church saw themselves. And as a result of that, they were able to continue in this unstoppable fashion to go out, to love the unlovely, to welcome the marginalized, the people that society doesn't know what the heck to do with because the church is saying, well, we know what to do with them. We will welcome them. We will love them because that's exactly what God in Christ did for us. He welcomed us. He didn't cast us off. We were completely unlike God. Our lives didn't look like God. We were, our lives are completely incongruent from the life of God. And yet God, because he is driven, motivated by love for us, he came out and rescued us. Because they saw themselves as part of that story of God and as a continuation of that story, they were able to see every platform, every arena as another opportunity to proclaim Christ, to share the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel by by way of kind actions, loving, giving money, showing generosity to all these other types of people without the typical, stereotypical condescension and anger and bitterness. Now, there are moments where that would creep back into the church because they are human. But the way they were able to self-correct was always the same, to bring it back to the gospel. 
bring it back to the story they found themselves. And I would suggest that's the same thing for us. When we begin to drift, how do we get back? We bring our lives back into alignment with the gospel. Who are we? Where do we belong? What has God done for us? What's, what's the purpose of our blessing? What's the purpose of our cancer or the purpose of our moments of crisis? What's the purpose of these things? What is God doing? What is he up to in the midst of these things? Are we squandering it or wasting it? Or are we seeing it as another platform to make much of this great God? And this is how the early church lived. In closing, I'm going to read this uh, couple of great quotes, one by the name of, guy named uh, John Stott says this, our mandate for world evangelism is the whole Bible. His point behind that is just the whole scripture is really this ongoing narrative story of God on a mission, <laughs> on a journey. If you think of it this way, God is a missionary God. He leaves heaven, leaves this place of glory and honor and worship of angels, by angels, to come into this trailer park we call planet Earth that's filled with brokenness and destruction and hurt and ruin to, for one purpose, to rescue the inhabitants who are stuck there, who are lost, who are broken. Uh, he says, our mandate for world evangelism is the whole Bible. It's to be found in the creation of God. Secondly, the character of God, the ongoing, loving, compassionate God, the promises of God that God sustains all these things, that uh, all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's offspring and ultimately the Messiah. The Christ of God, that's Jesus, the Spirit of God who convicts of sins, bears witness to Jesus, empowers the church, and ultimately the church of God, which is what we see in the book of Acts. It's this community of people that have been brought into the story of God, being blessed, the, 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 literally the seed, the, the offspring of Abraham, who are living within those covenant promises of God bringing blessing upon them, not so that they would just simply consume it or they would be an end of themselves, but that through their lives, they would be blessed to be a blessing. If we see our lives in that fashion, what type of a people would we become? Final quote is a guy by the name of Christopher Wright. I mentioned him earlier. Again, if you're looking for a good book to read, I would highly recommend this book. It's excellent. I've read it several times, and I keep going back to it, referencing it. It's so good. He says this, the exodus was not so much a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant. Redemption was for relationship with the Redeemer to serve his interests and his purposes in the world. And I believe the early church saw this exact same vocation that they were called to. In other words, Jesus came, constituted a new covenant with them, not just simply to manage their sinful proclivities, but to give them salvation from those sinful proclivities in order to release them as a community who's been blessed to be a blessing to all people. So what type of person would you become if all you just did with all of your energy, all of your focus, all of your power, you just simply lived with no other purpose than to stop sinning? You would be constantly focused about sin. Now, sin is a big issue we must always be aware of, but... The call of God actually goes beyond that. It involves that, but it goes beyond that to become a people who are blessed by God to be a blessing to all people. And this is where the Holy Spirit's role is to help us and empower us to overcome sinful proclivities, but really ultimately to be a blessing to all people. In other words, we're dealing with the issue of vocation. Do you see yourself as someone who has been swept up 
from a life of brokenness, from a life of slavery to sin, from a life of slavery to this big black hole called self, to being rescued to be part of God's kingdom, God's purposes here now, ultimately working to the time when Jesus will one day come again, to be a part of what God is doing, to bless you so that then through you, you will then be a blessing to other people. God's purposes are awesome, and this is what he invites you into. So, we're going to respond. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my hope is that you would hear the gospel, that God has not abandoned us, that God has done something through Jesus to not only take care of the offensiveness of sin, but to also bring us into a life whereby our lives have meaning and purpose now given to us, not by way of having to search for it or find it or discover it, but God has given it to us by way of grace, just like the early church saw themselves as part of the story, that God rescues us to be part of what he's doing here and now. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that you would trust Jesus, give him your heart. If you are a Christian, my hope would be that you would see your life as maybe way bigger than what you've ever even imagined it. The purpose, like something that God has for you is way bigger, way beyond what you've ever even dared to imagine what God has for you. Because God's big. God's purposes are big. So let's respond. Why don't we all stand, have the worship team come on up. We'll sing, we'll partake of communion. It's a way of reconnecting us with this act of God on our behalf through Jesus. He dies for us, bears upon himself the sin, as we would describe it, of the world. But prior to his death, he takes the bread and the cup. He breaks the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. And it's in that act that we see that Jesus saying, my blood will be shed, my body will be broken. It's this act that I will use to bring you who are broken, you who are poured out, you who are ruined, back into right relationships. Jesus says, this is my new covenant with you. So let's respond, partake of communion, let's sing, let's up our voices. If you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on, we have some people over off at the cross that would love to pray for you. So let me pray and let's respond. God, thank you for your great love. So God, even right now we... Just pause as we consider the broken bread, the poured out cup, and our need to be made whole. So God, by faith we trust you. We want to turn from alternative stories by way and act of repentance. To turn from those things, to turn from the brokenness, God, that so oftentimes just comes upon us and brings ruin upon our lives and oftentimes through our lives to other people. God, we want to be people remade by Jesus, by your power, by your spirit, to not to simply be containers of blessing, but to be hoses of blessing, vessels of blessing, that through us, God, you could use our lives to bring life and light and blessing and the gospel to others. So we respond to you in worship. Thank you.